You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, Kirk. Hey, Rachel. Hey. Hey, hey how's it going? Hey. Good. Guess what this episode is? I know. It's I know. episode 40. 40. Woo! Yay. 40. So exciting. We made it to Can 40. Can you believe it? Thank you to everybody who's uh, listened through all these, and uh, we, we got a bunch more to do. Let's keep going. We're officially a middle-aged podcast. <laughs> like, does that imply that we're gonna like die at episode eighty or something? I don't, I don't like the implication of that one bit. Yeah, this this Woo. this thing in my and head didn't actually work timeline. out. Never mind. It sounded so much better in your head. <laughs> okay. I am starting us off this week, and as we all know, Rachel Rachel loves especially to talk about Australian wildlife. That's true. And why not the animals? Not on purpose. uh, Oh, it's totally on purpose, isn't it? But the animals (laughs) and plants of Australia are are very cool and often seem strange to people from other parts of the world. Those marsupials, the monotremes, like the platypus eucalyptuses, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. numerous deadly snakes and spiders. And a lot of these types of organisms are simply not found in other parts of the world. Or, you know, like marsupials, they dominate in Australia in a way that they don't uh, in other places. Right. They're not competing with placental mammals. Right. But why is it that Australia is so different? So that is what I'm going to be talking about. Is it because everything there is upside down? Yes, that is why. Oh, well. Yep. Mystery solved. Yep. All right. I don't need to talk about um, it. Next, I think uh, it's, uh, uh, it's me, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, great. We'll go to break. <laughs> no, go ahead. Tell <laughs> us. Tell us why. <laughs> okay. So there are, in the world, eight large uh, regions called biogeographic realms. Um, okay. So between any two regions there's a noticeable difference in the general types of animals that occur. And these realms are usually divided by kind of obvious barriers of geography and or climate. So like the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Sahara, the Himalaya, uh, the Isthmus of Panama. There is one place where the barrier is not so obvious. Between the Indomalayan realm, formerly known as the Oriental and the right. Australasian realm. So okay. uh, the Australasian realm includes okay. Australia, New Zealand, and New Guinea. And the Indo-Malayan realm includes all of the Indian subcontinent, southern China, Indochina, and it stretches about halfway across the Indonesian archipelago. Okay. Now, you know, Indonesia, that archipelago consists of thousands of islands Uh, And most of them are separated by less than 100 miles of water. And an interesting thing that happens is that in the Indochinese Peninsula and across the western part of Indonesia, 
animals are kind of what you would consider more familiar Eurasian types. You got your leopards, your li- your tigers, your monkeys, your rhinoceroses, squirrels, pheasants, woodpeckers, hornbills. Um, as you head eastward, there's a pretty abrupt shift, and it happens mm-hmm. along a line, like an imaginary line. If you draw between, um, so with Borneo and Bali on the western side of the line, and Sulawesi and Lombok on the eastern side of the line, so. Like Borneo and Sulawesi are neighboring islands and Bali and Lombok are neighboring islands. So if you can imagine this line going kind of northward between them. Okay. Okay. So on the eastern side of this line, suddenly many many of these Eurasian species are absent. Uh, your large mammals disappear. Most weakly flying birds like pheasants, they're gone. Anything that has a hard time crossing water and there are a lot fewer types of species. And you also start finding a few Austronesian marsupials in some remote okay. habitats. Okay. Yeah. All right. So obviously, um, many people had noticed this difference. Undoubtedly, uh, the local people had noticed, and also some prior European explorers. However, the first Western scientist to attempt an explanation for this difference is the semi-famous famous Alfred Russell Wallace. Oh, yes, Wallace. Yes, also known as the co-discoverer oh, yes. of the theory of evolution. Right. He was the guy uh, who was, he wrote to Charles Darwin, he's like, listen to this amazing theory that I've come up with. And Darwin was like, okay. oh, God, the thing I've been Crap. working on for the last 20 <laughs> oh, years, no. I better go and publish. Right. Oh, no. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. Sounds anyway. Good. Uh, Wallace did years of fieldwork in Southeast Asia, and he was uh, the greatest authority at the time on the worldwide distribution of species. So it was a very curious thing he noticed. But, you know, these straits between these islands are not any wider or more treacherous than the other nearby islands. Mm -hmm. So Wallace's explanation, which is pretty accurate given the relatively primitive understanding of geology at the time, he proposed that everything... West of the line had at one time been part of the Asian continent. And everything east of the line had once been part of the Australian continent. Wow. Whoa. Good. What, what, what an amazing That's at like, least insight. Yes. Like That's... 60 years before um, plate tectonics was even thought about. It, or indeed. Like before... Yeah, and they knew that oh, glaciers man. had happened, but they didn't really know the extent of glaciation or exactly where they had gone or what exactly had happened. At any rate, the line is now called Wallace's Line. And to be honest, Wallace's explanation was mostly but not entirely correct. So everything right. west of the line had, in fact, been part of Asia. So during the Ice Age, when sea levels were much, much lower, basically... Borneo and Bali are on the edge of the continental shelf there. Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, a similar thing happens as you head uh, westward from Australia and New Guinea. And there is another corresponding line, which is called uh, Lydecker's Line, after Richard Lydecker, an English naturalist of a later generation than Wallace. Um, So Australia and New Guinea and some of these eastern islands were part of a much bigger kind of Australian continent than we have today. Mm -hmm. So then there's this area in the middle, which is in between Wallace's line in the west and Lydecker's line in the east. 
And so it's this set of islands that have a really pretty limited biological diversity. Uh, They're only populated by organisms that can cross water. So strongly flying birds, insects that can be blown there on a storm or can fly there, seeds that can float in the water or the air. And at the western end, the organisms are more Asian. And then there's a gradual change. And on the eastern eastern end, they're more Australian. And they kind of meet in the middle and overlap. So this in-between area is now called Wallacea, also after Wallace. (laughs) Of course. Uh Yeah, and these islands are just basically surrounded by deep straits that remained filled with water even when those sea levels were so much lower during the Ice Age. So those were the, the forever islands surrounded by the much bigger continents than we have today. Yeah. And all yeah. of those animals uh, that you know, were on the continents could basically walk, and then eventually the seas rose and created the islands we have today. So it's really pretty cool. And this is also the region yeah. that shows the first evidence of seafaring in humans. So we can kind of tie back to, to human history here. So uh, Australia was settled at least, uh, Australia and New Guinea were settled by modern humans at least 50,000 years ago, possibly as much as 65,000 years ago, which is a really long time ago. Uh, this oh, is well before the, the quote-unquote Cro-Magnons of Europe. Um, and they almost certainly did this by island hopping on whatever kind of watercraft they had eastward from the area. Oh, yeah. when, when, you look at, when you look at a map, it's just, you, mm-hmm. you can absolutely picture... There's so many islands yeah. and it's it's just mind-boggling honestly. But it's it's uh yeah, it's pretty amazing to imagine imagine such ancient human ancestors uh under undertaking such journeys, but they did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Wallace's line, that was uh that was what I have to tell you today. That's great. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Next we'll uh after the break we'll have Kirk Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. So when I was researching last week's topic on birds uh, using oh. smell for migration, right? I came upon just an awesome article in Audubon magazine uh, by Nancy Averett uh, that was written in 2014 called Birds Can Smell and One Scientist is Trying to Prove It. And uh, it's a great article. I, I highly recommend checking it out as it tells the story of scientist Gabrielle Nevitt and how she spent her career devising experiments trying to find ways to show people that birds really do have an amazing sense of smell. And I didn't end up using anything really from that article because it was more about birds smelling than about what I wanted to talk about, which was birds using smell for migration. Uh, but this, this week, I did want to take a minute to share an amusing anecdote from that article and also sort of a possible aha moment I had while reading it. So 
Uh, Averant tells a story about how when uh, Nevit took her first Antarctic cruise, and uh, let's be clear, this was a, a research cruise, not a pleasure <laughs> cruise. Right. Uh, she submitted her supply lists uh, of needs to the uh, National Science Foundation contractor, and one item gave him some pause. So uh, she needed huge kites, and he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah. Check. Why not? Like, Big old right. kites, let's how, go. How about some really strong smelling like krill scent okay. juice or whatever? And he's like, yep, sure. no problem. Great, I can get that. She's like, great, okay. Now I need um, hundreds of boxes of super absorbent tampons. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yeah, he apparently sure. stammered and was like, um, "Like a man uh, stammered in the face I, um, of tampons." I, I, I don't think I can get those for you, ma'am. <laughs> so she, like, she had to secure those her, uh, herself. And uh, oh, that's just so. Uh, yeah. yeah, but the reason she needed them uh, was either brilliant or crazy, uh, and like both. we talked about last week, our favorite things. Um, it's both. Probably, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. So everyone at the time knew that birds couldn't smell. So her idea, though, was, um, I think people were probably like, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> um, she decided to, uh, she was going to go out to sea mm -hmm. on this research vessel, soak the tampons in the smell of krill. Yes. Gross. And then atta attach them to the kites. I love this. And then fly the kites off the back of this uh, this this boat, the deck of this boat, and Beautiful. the idea was that this this smell would then be lofted up into the air, uh -huh. hopefully, to attract birds, because the yeah. birds would have no reason to come to these kites or think anything of them, yeah. and uh, everyone, of course, knew that this was a completely preposterous idea because birds can't smell. What year was this again, right? Kirk? Clearly. Oh, boy. I want to say... Oh, I didn't write it down. It was like 1991 or 95. Somewhere in there. Even it was in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. So she got him up there. And sure enough, uh, when she set her kites aloft, she attracted dozens of petrels, albatross, and shearwaters who were looking for the source of the krill smell. Thing smells delicious. Where's lunch? Yeah, so everyone had, like lunch. everyone had <laughs> basically assumed that birds used other methods to search for food, but it turns out they were actually smelling it, which I think it's, is so cool. It's yeah, so cool, but, but it also makes sense. Yes. Exactly. It totally makes sense, but everyone's like, what can't be? Well, can't see it, be. then it why be. not smell it? I, and in all fairness, I think that was partially because people thought that birds' brains are so small mm -hmm. that there was no room for, like, the, um, what's it called, the olfactory bulb yeah. to, like, you know, like, smell that. Um, but um, the experiment was so successful and attracted so many birds, uh, she was actually afraid they were going to get tangled in all the strings and drowned, and she had to take all the kites down and had to, um, you know... Just do her experiment in a different way because the right. kites turned out to be too dangerous <laughs> and it was too successful. Um, but the article went on to describe sort of this another aha moment she had on a research cruise the next year that, that then allowed her to figure out exactly how the birds track the krill through the ocean and to know um, like where to go to find them. So like I said, I don't want to give it all away. Uh, it's a really great article and everyone should go and read it. 
But part of the reason I mention it, though, is that other than being a great read, is that I also had a, a light bulb or like an aha moment of my own when reading it. So this very same article describes the 2008 research of postdoc Danielle Whitaker, uh, who investigated this, the smelling ability of juncos. And again, everyone thought she was totally okay. just off her rocker mm -hmm. for wanting to yes. do this. Well, it turns out, bir bir you may know that like, birds have like a preening gland that makes mm -hmm. oil the yeah. birds use to keep feathers in good condition, right? So right. it's located at the base of the tail. And when she was analyzing the smell in the oil uh, of, from juncos, she realized that males and females smell different. Uh, and there's a, and then and that was just interesting enough. It's like, well, why would they smell different? Um, she was able to actually show a correlation between how strong the smell is and how successful they are at nesting. Oh wow! And huh. so we often talk about how colorful a bird is as a judgment of how fit it is, and the, uh, and mates selection is often based on fitness for because you want your nest to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, and we do know that birds absolutely do select mates based on color, but it may be that birds actually use smell to choose their mates, and that smell is an even better predictor of who's going to be the best to mate with. Hmm. So that is Whoa. so cool. And when I read that, I, not only was I just like, oh my gosh, that's so cool, um, I got really excited because it may actually tie into one of my all-time favorite animal facts that I have, I've wanted to share on the podcast, but I g couldn't find any way to share it because it just was like a one-sentence fact and I didn't have anything to put with it. Right. But it, it may all be come together in my brain now. <laughs> See, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a licensed bird bander. Uh, and so I have the honor of getting to catch, band, and release songbirds uh, as part of research programs. And in doing so, I end up holding on to a lot of wild birds. Right. And one of the interesting things someone pointed out to me uh, very early on when I started out as a bird bander is that if you ever get an American goldfinch in your hand, which I realize most of our listeners will never have the opportunity to do, but if you're holding on to a goldfinch and you sniff it, goldfinches smell exactly like maple syrup. What? That's so weird. Gold, what? yeah, like, what? I can't make a whole episode out of that, but it's this cool, my favorite nature fact is that goldfinches smell like maple syrup. It is uncanny, and it's amazing, and I've talked to tons of people, and no one has any idea, like, or any plausible reason why goldfinches should smell like maple syrup. I can't find research articles on it, I can't find anything about maple syrup goldfinches, it's just one of these things that you happen to know if you've ever sniffed a goldfinch. Have you sniffed a goldfinch? <laughs> As one does. I, I have, yeah, because I'm a bird bander. Someone was like, oh, you got a goldfinch. Can, can, you, you should smell it. Hey, and I'm like, hey. why would I smell it? They're like, just smell it. I, I want to sniff goldfinch, Kirk. Well, come help me bird band sometime. Maybe we can set that up. I'm always down um, for that. <laughs> so um, my now, I don't know this, but my assumption has always been that the smell is the compound soloton, which is an aromatic found in a number of foods, including imitation maple syrup. It's what gives imitation maple syrup its smell. I'm pretty sure it's also in celery, because um, I feel like my hands always smell like maple. It's, I, I know it's celery. in uh, a, a number of things. It's in, is it the um, fenugreek? Yeah, fenugreek. Or, uh, yeah. So there, there's a number of things that have this compound in there. I'm just going to so, sit here in shock that your hands smell like maple after you cut celery. 
Check it out next time you cut up some celery. Tell me if I'm crazy. I've been thinking about this. Like, why would Goldfinches smell like maple syrup? And I always figured it was just like some sort of fluke resulting from the, their diet, right? But once I was reading this article, I realized that it very could well be that the smell is from their preening oil. And, that the, and it, it likely is from something in their diet. Uh-huh. But um, the goldfinches themselves, perhaps, can smell that smell. And as I was reading about the research on the juncos and that the birds could be using this as a smell to pick mates, it, it really got me thinking, like, is this smell of goldfinches has something to do with them, how, how they smell to each other for mating purposes, which would be super cool. So I don't know that anyone has looked at, you know, the connection between the maple syrup smell and goldfinches and it being a measure of their reproductive fitness. But if you happen to be an ornithologist looking for an amazing research opportunity, this could be it. Please let me know. I need to know the answer to this question. I want uh, to know. This is... This is now sort of my leading hypothesis for why goldfinches smell like maple syrup. And I super hope someone more talented uh, than I am in designing uh, experiments can take this up and find out if there's a connection between the smell and reproductive success. So it could be that maple syrup is essentially like the best smelling cologne in the goldfinch world. That would be so amazing if we could actually get some research on that. Yeah, so so please someone, someone who's looking for a good project, take this up. Uh, because I, I, I really want to know uh, if you can, you know, correlate uh, the maple syrup smell with reproductive fitness. So that's what I have for you uh, this week from the strange world of nature. Thank you, Kirk. After the break, you're welcome. Uh, go eat some pancakes. And after the break, we will uh, be back with a story from Rachel. So we're back. And for our 40th episode... I'm doing a little something new for the intro of what animal I'm going to be covering. Okay. So buckle Uh up. Do you have a song for us? When you go take a dive down the reef, you will find a moray. Oh, no. They can swim, they can glide, but they'd rather hide in the coral. So don't. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Keep going. So don't put your hand in, or you might lose some skin to the moray. <laughs> uh, that that's it. I'm I'm gonna talk okay, about the green moray eels. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> I will say one of our patrons. Rachel's actually, album comes out in uh, twenty twenty never. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say one of our patrons dared me to do that. So thanks, Amanda, for that. Um, generally speaking, I try to keep things like not like that, but hey, it's fine. Anyway, uh, so green moray eels. Uh, I'm going with green moray eels rather than just moray eels in general, because there are about 200 species of moray eels. Uh, almost, oh, really? almost wow. all of which are marine, right? I didn't think there were that many, but there are. Yeah. Um, so green moray eels are found in the Western Atlantic Ocean. Um, generally from like New Jersey, 
Bermuda, northern Gulf of Mexico, all the way down to Brazil. Um, they can be nice. found at depths of the ocean of about 130 feet. They prefer uh, to be in coral reefs um, for multiple reasons. They are opportunistic predators. Uh, their length is 2.5 meters or 8.2 feet. That's big. They're big. That's oh, very yeah, large. Big. That <sighs> is almost two Rachels. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And so it's a slong. It's that slong. Okay. It's <laughs> so what now? <laughs> nope. No, I mean, well, anyway, go on. I'm redoing it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's a long, slender eel. It is a true eel. Uh, with mm-hmm. a dorsal fin that connects from behind its head all the way down its body, um, connecting with the caudal and anal fins all the way down through its tail. It has a face with two nostrils that are visible. <laughs> and they have an upper upper jaw with uh, two full rows of teeth. Uh, while yeah. the bottom oh, yeah, they do. There's just a single row of teeth. Um, oftentimes, if you see them in like an aquarium or if you happen to be scuba diving and you run into a moray eel, like, first of all, congratulations. They're very, very uh, shy elusive. animals. Yeah. Elusive. Um, but oftentimes you'll see them with their mouth open and it looks like they're being menacing. What they're really doing is they're taking in water so they can get it through their gills and passing it through so they're actually getting oxygen to their body. But what's extra crazy, uh, they have something that is called um, a pharyngeal jaw. Yes. Yes. Um, They sure do. And they are the only vertebrate known, they're the only fish, the only vertebrate known to have this. So the jaw that you see is the outer jaw and that's the jaw that grips the prey and then there's another set of jaws in their throat that shoots forward to bite the target the prey and pull it in just like the alien in the alien movies alien yeah yep oh man that is horrifying yeah I, I Who wants to go for a swim pictures? after this? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I saw pictures and like a small video of it, and it's as horrifying as you think it would be, honestly. Well, I tell you what, Rachel, uh, as bonus content mm-hmm. to our patrons, uh, after the episode, uh, I'm going to tell a story about one of my coworkers. You worked at who an was a green moray eel? No, who was a green moray eel? <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you a story about those jaws, but you have to be a patron to hear it. <laughs> oh, I can't no. wait. I can't either. Um, so that's absolutely insane. Just having a whole other set of jaws just to come forward. You already have three rows of teeth. Why not have a whole other jaw set? You know? Um, yeah. Why not? So they are like a pretty decent green. Uh, I have green hair. They're a little darker than my hair. 
Uh, so they're like a true green color. And the reason why they're green is both gross and just uh, weird. Uh, so their skin color, the skin color of a moray eel, a green moray eel, uh, is a brownish gray. Okay, that's what their skin color is. Um, but they're covered with a mucus layer. Yum. Right. <laughs> uh. That is actually yellow. <laughs> Uh, and this protects okay. it from, like, parasites and bacteria, especially since they're in uh, crevices a lot. Um, but because right. it's yellow, when it interacts with the brownish gray of their skin, it turns them green. So huh. that's why they're green. <laughs> so is that, that's not why your hair is green, That is not right? why my hair is green, no. Oh, phew. <laughs> All right. I thought that mucus wash was really working for you. <laughs> no, no, Thanks no. Thanks for no. that image, Kirk. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, what I'm here for. So one other thing I wanted to touch on is that uh, they'll lay their eggs at a spawning site, um, mainly because they are very solitary animals. They don't have any, they don't have many natural prey. They tend to be the top of the food chain uh, in the coral reefs where they call the call home. Um but they'll lay the eggs at the females will lay eggs at the spawning site and males will come and fertilize them. And then once they're fertilized, eventually they'll hatch, but they hatch into larva. Oh. Uh, and will hmm. go through metamorphosis. Hmm. Wow. To become an adult. <laughs> well, I guess now that you mention it, other eels do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Eels in like, general are bizarre as all. Yeah, time. they are eels very are, strange yeah, so fish. Strange. I'm pretty sure, like, I'm pretty sure it's eels that scientists are not really sure what they look like as a larva, but I might be mistaking it with another animal. Well, this would actually be a good future ones. episode. Yeah. I could talk about eels. I think it's a little yeah. more, little. There's a little more to it than that. They're absolutely just, good. just a little bit um, more. But yeah, I really wanted to just sing a little song and talk about the moray eels with you all today. So that's what I have for you guys today. For a 40th Wonderful. episode. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yay. Go 40. Uh, well, thank you all for joining us this joining us this week. Um, see you next week talk to you then. Bye. 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 Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.